exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Have you ever been determined to do something, but once things got hard, you begin to have second thoughts? I think a lot about the Russian soldiers who were told they were going to easily roll through Ukraine and take over the country in just a few short days. And now that they're stuck in an ongoing, months-long conflict, and now that tens of thousands of their fellow soldiers are dead or wounded, you can imagine that many of them may be second-guessing whether or not it was really worth it. I also think about civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., who knew that what they were fighting for was right, but maybe after facing considerable opposition, death threats, and imprisonments, I wonder if they began to question if what they were doing was really worth it. There may be times when you are required to take a stand for what you absolutely know is right, but once people begin to violently oppose your mission... It causes you to stall, to question, to hesitate, and maybe even give up entirely. If you haven't already, please turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we're going to be picking up in verse 18. And while you're turning, let me tell you that in John 15, Jesus is going to prepare his disciples for what's ahead of them. At this point in the story, it's only been a few days since Palm Sunday, And the disciples still probably believed that Jesus would be the king. They probably believed that because Jesus rode in on that donkey to become king of Israel, and and as they were shouting Hosanna, the disciples probably thought that when Jesus sets up his new regime, that they would be governors and co-counsels, and that they, they would be loved by the people too because Jesus was loved by them as well. And in John 15, Jesus is going to demolish those expectations. And he's going to warn his disciples that persecution, not praise, is coming their way. By the time this gospel had been written, Stephen the deacon had already been stoned. Peter had already been crucified. James, the brother of Jesus, had already been thrown off the roof of the temple and then beaten to death. And even today, from India to Iran, from Afghanistan... To Pakistan, Christians are slaughtered by the hundreds for their faith. Now, before we dive into the discussion about persecution, I think that it needs to be said that, that we in this room certainly do not face the kind of persecution that either the early church faced or many modern Christians face. We live incredibly privileged and peaceful lives here in America. And, and when we read passages like this, We need to be careful that we don't develop some kind of persecution complex. But with all that being said, I believe that we're entering into a post-Christian America. It's becoming more and more true that if you hold faithfully that the Bible is true and that Jesus is the only way, you're going to face increasing opposition and hatred. It used to be that you couldn't run for town dog catcher unless you taught Sunday school at some church somewhere. Now, if you go to a church that takes the Bible too seriously, you can be in big trouble. Recently, a politician in England attended a church that happened to believe that marriage was between one man and one woman. And when it was discovered that he had attended this church, the politician had to come out and denounce the church and their hateful views. It's okay to be a Christian. 
But if you take the Bible too seriously, then you'll find yourself in hot water. If you believe in the miracles of the Bible, the world will think you're a fool. If you believe in the morality of the Bible, the world will think you're a bigot. If you preach the gospel of the Bible, the world will call you narrow-minded. So how can we endure when friends and family who we love and care for deeply despise us? When coworkers mock and belittle you, when the world hates you, and you start to have second thoughts, how are you going to make it when you face that kind of opposition? Well, my prayer for us this morning is that we would be able to endure whatever persecution comes our way by remembering the words of Jesus in John 15. Because in John 15, we're going to find three vital truths for us to know so that we will not fall away. First, in verses 18 through 25, we'll find that to be hated without cause is to be like Jesus. Second, in verses 26 and 27, to testify about Jesus is to testify with the Spirit. And third, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 16, to be hated like Jesus is to be expected. To be hated without cause is to be like Jesus. To testify about Jesus is to testify with the Spirit. And to be hated like Jesus is to be expected. So let's pray and we'll, we'll dive in. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Look with me to verse 18. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. We'll stop right there for now. Jesus had just gotten done talking with his disciples about their need to love one another, just as he has loved them. Why is it so crucial for for this new people, this new community, to be one marked by love for one another? Because the world is going to hate them. Why would the world hate Jesus' disciples? Well, because they hated Jesus first. But that, of course, raises the question, why did they hate Jesus? Well, remember back to John chapter 7, verse 7, where Jesus said, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world did not hate Jesus because of his miracles. It wasn't because he claimed to be the Messiah or even because of the style in which he preached. No, they hated Jesus because he called out the people's sins. And I've heard many people say that we shouldn't focus so much on sin and that kind of stuff. We should just focus on making sure people feel loved and accepted. And I understand the sentiment. I want people to feel loved and accepted. But, but here's the problem with that. That's not the way Jesus ordered his ministry. When Jesus first began his ministry, his first words out of his mouth were, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus confronted the Pharisees time and time again on their wickedness. And yes, of course, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, but only after calling them to repent. Jesus was not known as a friend of sinners because he approved of their sins, but because those were the people who more often than not recognized how badly they needed Jesus. You see, the reason Jesus testified that the works of the world were evil was because you will never take medicine for a disease that you do not believe you have. You will never come to the Savior unless you truly believe that you are, in fact, a sinner. I want everyone right now to ask yourself, 
Am I a good person? And think about that answer for just a second. Now, if your answer is yes, I am a good person, then you're in trouble because you have no idea how badly you need Jesus. God is absolutely perfect. He is altogether holy and righteous and just, and he will punish sin from the most unspeakable acts of evil to the smallest white lie. And that's terrible news because all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. Just think about your life for a moment. How have you sinned and disobeyed God's commandments? How many times have you sinned, assuming you could count them? The more and more you meditate on this truth, the more you'll recognize that you are not, in fact, a good person, but that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. But the good news is this, that though you deserve to be condemned and thrown into the fires of hell, Jesus came. Truly God from all of eternity, he took on flesh and became a true man in every way that you and I are, except without sin, never once sinned, never ceasing to be God. He was the only good man to ever truly live. The only one who never sinned. And it was because he was perfect that he could be the spotless sacrifice for the sin of the world. He was perfect. He laid down his life and suffered and died as a substitute for sinners. He did not die for good people. He died the death of a sinner and then rose from the grave, defeating sin, death, and hell itself. So that now anyone who acknowledges their sinfulness, turns from their sin, and turns to Jesus for eternal life will be forgiven. Amen? Amen. But only if you recognize how bad of a person you truly are. But if you do that and you put your faith alone in Jesus, you will become righteous. That's the only way to be a good person. Like right now, in the eyes of God, the Lord sees me as good, deserving of heaven, not because of a single good thing I've done, but because through faith, I've been united with Jesus, and not only have my sins been nailed to that cross when he was there, But he gives me his perfect righteousness. So now God the Father looks at me with the same love, approval, and affection with which he looks at his own beloved son. And Christian, that's how he looks at you. I think this is a glorious message. I think it's the most important news anyone will ever hear. But people hated Jesus Because his gospel was a message about repenting from sin. And now we get back to verse 18. Why will the world hate us like it hated Jesus? Because we have the same message that Jesus had. In verse 18, Jesus is telling his disciples that they're not going to be governors and rulers, but ambassadors. And they're going to go out into all the world and call the people to repent. And as they call the people to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus, that message will cause people to hate them in the same way they hated Jesus. But that's not the only reason they're going to be hated. Look with me to verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
When you become a Christian, you become united with Christ through faith. And because of that union you enjoy, your life begins to produce the fruits of the Spirit. Your life will begin to change and transform until you no longer love what the world loves. And you undergo this process. And as you're changing, the the more different from the world you will become. And eventually that's going to get some people mad because if you live a holy life marked by the fruits of the Spirit, eventually people around you are going to ask, what's wrong with them? Why are they different? Why don't they like what we like? Why don't they enjoy what we enjoy? But once again, just like last week, Jesus is so quick to make sure that you do not get prideful because of how holy you are. In verse 19, Jesus tells us that the reason you are different from the world The reason you are not of this world is not because you are so holy. We were all dead branches who produced no fruit. We deserve to be chopped off and thrown into the fire until Jesus gave us life and saved us. Just what John, the same author of our gospel, wrote. But this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The reason we're not of this world is not because of anything we've done but because of his grace. And so Jesus goes on in verse 20 and he says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus just said this a couple chapters ago, but back then he was talking about serving others. But here Jesus applies that same proverb from earlier to being persecuted. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense in this verse is that second if statement in verse 20. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The thing is, if you read the Gospels, the people did not, in fact, keep Jesus' word. So what is Jesus talking about? And I think this is what Jesus is saying. In the same way that the people kept my word, they will keep your word. They did not keep my word. They did not listen to my teaching. And in fact, they hated me for it. So don't be surprised when they react the same way to you when you preach my word. When we suffer persecution, it should comfort us to know that we are only following in Jesus' footsteps. When we share the gospel and people reject it, it should comfort us to know That it's not because of something we did wrong. It's because they rejected Jesus, so they're going to reject us as well. Raise the question, why will they reject our message? Why exactly is that true if this is such good news? We'll look to verse 21. Jesus continues, verse 21 to 25. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now real quick, verses 22 and 24 throw a lot of people off. Because it sounds like, is is Jesus saying that the people would not have been guilty of any sin if he had not come. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Remember that old rule, Scripture interprets Scripture. Whenever you find an unclear part of Scripture, use the clear parts that are easy to understand to interpret the unclear parts. 
And we know from Romans 1 that God has given every man a conscience and that tells them what is right and wrong so that no man is without excuse. Every human being, whether they've heard the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount or whatever other laws of the Bible, is still going to be held accountable by God for the evil things they've done. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that the people of Israel, even though they had more evidence than anyone else in the history in the world, still committed the sin of rejecting Jesus, and they are guilty of that sin. If Jesus had not come, they would not have been guilty of the sin of rejecting him. But now that they've heard him preach and seen his miracles, not only did they not receive the grace and mercy and forgiveness that Jesus offered to them, but they're worse off than before because now they're guilty of rejecting the one and only Son of God. But you may be wondering, how is that possible? How is it possible for someone to be there and experience all the Israelites experience and yet still not believe? Well, verse 21 tells us the ultimate reason people reject Jesus. The reason they rejected the gospel, the reason they continue to reject us is because they do not know God. And then in verse 23, Jesus doubles down on this claim and he says, whoever hates me, they hate my father also. That's pretty strong language, and it sounds hard to believe, but whoever hates Jesus hates God. And all of this was to fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament that said that the Messiah would be hated without cause. And here's the logic of what Jesus is saying here. They hated the Father, therefore they they hated me. They hated me, therefore they will hate you as well. We often think that to be like Jesus means to be humble or holy. And those things are true. But there's also a sense that that to be hated without a cause, when you've done nothing right and nothing wrong and everything right, is to be Christ-like. To suffer persecution, as small as it may seem compared to others in other places, is to follow in our Master's footsteps and to be like Him. And that's the first vital truth in this passage. To be hated without a cause is to be like Jesus. Jesus is telling his disciples that to be like him is to be hated, persecuted, and rejected. But despite all that, he's still going to tell them in just a little while, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Doesn't this seem like a hopeless mission? I mean, if if Jesus healed the blind and raised men from the grave and they did not believe when they saw Jesus... What hope do the disciples have? What hope do we have? Well, that leads us to our second vital truth in this passage, which is this. To testify about Jesus is to testify with the Spirit. Look with me to verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. There is once a seminary professor who every semester would take all of his students in that preaching class on a field trip to a cemetery. And when they arrived, he would challenge the young preachers and say, preach and call the dead to be raised. And then every single student would get up on a soapbox in the graveyard and one by one urge the dead to rise. 
And after everyone had had their turns and all the, gra the graves remained undisturbed, the professor would look at his students and say, your preaching will produce the same results unless the spirit moves. And those are the same odds that we are facing as we share the gospel with others unless we receive help from God himself. That's why when Jesus is going to send his disciples to bear witness about him, he's not sending them alone. He's sending the helper, the divine third person of the Holy Trinity. And this spirit of truth is going to bear witness to the truth as these disciples bear witness to the truth that they have seen. And that's exactly what we see at Pentecost. Peter gets up to preach in that same city, which just a few weeks prior had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people repent, believe, are baptized, and are added to the number of the church in a single day. How is that possible? Because Peter was a better preacher than Jesus? Absolutely not. It was because at Pentecost, the spirit of truth testified with Peter. And guess what? That same spirit, he testifies with us today. As we share the gospel with others, the spirit of God testifies with us and calls sinners by name and commands them, rise from the dead, live, follow Jesus. Theologians call this the effectual call of God. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians when he wrote, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. We call all men everywhere to repent. And we know that from experience, most of the time, our testimony is rejected. But when the Spirit testifies with us, our testimony is no longer foolishness. It's no longer a stumbling block, but our testimony about Jesus becomes the power and wisdom of God. And that's the second vital truth of this passage. To witness about Jesus is to testify with the Spirit. But why is Jesus telling us about all this anyway? And that leads us to our third vital truth. Because to be hated like Jesus is to be expected. Look with me to verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. We'll stop right there. On a side note, I, I just have to say, this passage is just a total slap in the face to the prosperity gospel. There's a version of Christianity out there that's incredibly popular, so popular that you can find these books in Walmart. And, and, and this version of Christianity, their message boils down to this. Have faith in Jesus and be blessed. And they're not just talking about spiritual blessings, but financial blessings and physical healings. That if you have enough faith, then you should expect to lead a prosperous life. But John 15 and 16 just flies in the face of that kind of thinking. If you believe in Jesus, expect the world to hate you. 
Expect persecution. Expect to be mocked and discriminated against. And maybe even expect to be killed by people who believe from the bottom of their hearts that they are serving God. The gospel promises blessing and prosperity and even healing. But not in this life, my friends. Not in this life. This life will be marked by trials and tribulations, by persecution, and at times poverty. We don't believe in Jesus because he's going to make our lives better, but because he is worthy of our worship and he is our only hope to be forgiven. This world is passing away. And if your hope is in this world only, then it is a foolish thing to be a Christian. Imagine a man who's sitting on an airplane and someone hands him a parachute. Let me just say, I'm borrowing this illustration from a preacher named Ray Comfort. I'm just shamelessly, he does it so well. Imagine a man who's sitting on an airplane and someone hands him a parachute and he tells him to put it on because it's going to make his flight more enjoyable. This man is skeptical at first, but he's curious, so he puts on the parachute to see if his flight gets any better. As time goes on, he notices the weight of the parachute on his shoulders and how cramped he is in his seat. Eventually, his fellow passengers begin to snicker and laugh at him for wearing it, and he begins to feel embarrassed on top of being uncomfortable. At this point, he rips off the parachute, and as far as he's concerned, he's never going near one of those things ever again. Now imagine the second man. He's given a parachute, but he's told to put it on because at any moment, he's going to be jumping 25,000 feet out of the plane. He gratefully puts it on. He does not notice the weight of it upon his shoulders or that he can't sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen to him if he jumped without that parachute. Even as the other passengers point their fingers and laugh, it does, not want, it does not make him want to take the parachute off one bit. It anything, it causes him to cling tighter to the parachute and even look forward to the jump. What is Jesus doing here? He's preparing his disciples for both the plane ride and the jump. He's trying to keep their eye on the prize so that when persecution comes, they will not be blindsided. They won't think that the plan has failed, but in fact, their faith will grow because Jesus' words have come true. And he didn't just say these things for the 11 disciples in the room, but also for all of us listening here today, so that when persecution comes, we'd be prepared for it. Remember, my prayer this morning was that you would be able to endure persecution by remembering these words of Jesus, because in John 15, we found three vital truths for us to know so that we will not fall away. We found that to be hated without cause is to be like Jesus. To testify about Jesus is to testify with the Spirit. And to be hated like Jesus is to be expected. So how do you respond when the world opposes you? Are you quick to second guess? Or have you been prepared for it? When you hear that the world hates you, does that drive you to go hide in a bunker or to go and do evangelism. I know a lot of Christians that just want to hide out until the Lord returns, but that is not the attitude that Jesus is calling us to adopt. Jesus is not telling the disciples these things so that they can hide and eventually escape to heaven. He's telling them these things so that they will be able to endure whatever trials come their way all the way to heaven. So how do we endure? How are we going to make it? Why have three pastoral charges, three ways you will be able to endure persecution. First pastoral charge. 
Put on the Lord Jesus Christ to escape the wrath to come. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ to escape the wrath to come. If you suffer for the name of Jesus, but you've never put your faith in Jesus, then your suffering in this life will be nothing compared to the righteous judgment you'll receive for the sins you've committed. But if you turn from your sin and put your faith alone in the Savior and trust what he did on that cross, then he will save you from the wrath to come. Through faith, you will be united with Jesus so that all your sins have been nailed to that wood and his perfect righteousness is now yours and you can be no more condemned than Jesus himself. So put on the Lord Jesus through faith. Second pastoral charge, rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has to move for anyone to be saved. That's why we need to be in desperate prayer that God would move in the hearts of other people. And we need to be constantly sharing the gospel. If we want to be a church that exists to see God glorified and disciples multiply through the power of the gospel, then we have to be desperately dependent on the Spirit working through us. Remember, I've said this a couple times before, sharing the gospel is a lot like handing out lightning rods. There's no guarantee lightning will strike, but it is much more likely. And as we testify about Jesus, the Spirit testifies with us and He calls dead sinners to be raised to life and follow Jesus. Without Him, we can do nothing, but by His powers, we will see sinners who once hated Jesus come to love Him. So rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Final pastoral charge. Rejoice when you're persecuted. Rejoice when you're persecuted. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were beaten by the Jewish authorities, and then they were ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they were let go. But when Peter and John leave the courtroom, Luke tells us that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then they went every day in the temple and from house to house, teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. A servant is not above his master. And to be Christ-like includes being hated without a cause. So rejoice if you're counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Of course, once again, it needs to be said, oftentimes we suffer with a cause. So oftentimes we're jerks. We're sinners. We sin against our neighbor, our fellow church member, even strangers around us. And when people hate you because you're rude and sinful and unkind, you deserve that. I'll be honest with you. And I think that there's still a tendency and a temptation. We need to be so careful to guard against this, to read verses like this, and to create persecution for ourselves by being rude and obnoxious. And that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. But to be righteous and to do everything right and have people still hate you, that's the kind of suffering that Jesus puts in perspective. And so rejoice. Uh, My old pastor in Kansas City, Adam Sanders, put it this way, allow the hatred of the world to increase your appetite for heaven. Allow the hatred of the world to increase your appetite for heaven. As Christians, this world is not our home. 
As Christians, we know that our lives are just a vapor, here for a moment and then gone the next. And now, because you are not of this world, there is a longing within you for your true home. And if you embrace this kind of thinking, it will change the way you see the world. Politics is important for the Christian, but it is not ultimate. No matter who is in the White House, we can rest easy because Jesus is on his throne. America can end tomorrow and will be all right because we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. If we lose all of our money, all of our possessions, that's okay because we have treasure in heaven. If the world hates us, that's all good because we are not of this world. Our home is in heaven. Our worth is not found in the approval of man, but in the glory of God. And it's precisely because we have this hope of heaven that we'll be able to get through our trials here on earth. Amen? Amen. And with that being said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being concerned not only with our sins, but with our troubled hearts. Thank you for sending Jesus and speaking through him that we may be prepared for all that's to come. May the joys of our heavenly home help us to persevere. May your spirit give us boldness as we testify of Jesus. And by your grace, may we never fall away from Christ's love. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.